welcome to the Makers of Minnesota podcast, where we talk to cool people doing cool things. I'm Stephanie Hansen, and we're going to do something that's pretty cool today, I think. When I was interviewing my friends at Skullvin Distillery, uh, Tyson Schnichter said, hey, you know, someday we should interview you and learn about you. And I was like, oh, that's weird. I'd never thought about it. But I thought, you know, I've been doing this podcast three years. I sort of assume that people know stuff about me because I think I sprinkle it in a little bit along the way, but I've never really like said my story or, and I just thought, well, that's a great idea. That's something new and different. So here we are. So Tyson is with me today and he is going to lead the podcast and I'm going to be the guest. How do you feel about that, Tyson? I'm feeling pretty good. It's a little bit awkward. It's I haven't done any type of interview on someone since back in high school in the late 90s and TV production. So this is going to be a little different. I'm used to telling my story. You're used to asking people their story. It uh, should be fun. Let's get to know um, each before other. Before we launch into the podcast, I wanted to just touch base with you because when we did your podcast a few weeks back, you were just getting ready to get the cocktail room open again from the Correct. COVID restrictions. And now you're fully open and you just want to give us an update on how that's going at Skullvin Distillery and the cocktail room you guys have. We're very fortunate. Fortunate, It's going extremely well. Each weekend is busier than the last. And this past weekend, we were like 99% at our capacity limitation that we're at. I think we had two seats from four o'clock until uh, about 1030. So yeah, it's we're we're doing pretty well. People are loving what we're doing and uh, can't wait to see how that evolves in the future. It's pretty cool. Yeah, excellent. And do you guys have outdoor space or is that something you're working towards? We're 100% indoor at our, at our current location. It's outside as a parking lot with 18 wheelers driving by. And I made that call. That that's, uh, that's not a safe spot for people to sit and hang out. Right, right. All right. Well, if people want to visit the tap room, we encourage them to do so. Do you have? Are you taking reservations or is it just first come, first served? We're taking reservations. They're through Talk. We've got a link on our website. Uh, our old website broke, so I've got a temporary one just up, but that's got all, all you need to know. So for Fridays and Saturdays, we've been pretty much booked up. Thursdays are a little bit new for us, but I foresee that opening or uh, filling up sooner than later. Um, yeah, reservations strongly encouraged. Feel free to give me a call right before you come in if you're thinking about coming by. And I can tell you if you know there was a no-show or last-minute cancellation. But okay. I'd hate to have someone drive from Burnsville all the way up just for me to turn them around, which has happened. And I don't like it, but it's how it goes, unfortunately. I have to say, too, since I did the podcast with you guys, I've been getting lots of Instagram messages about the habanero rum. <laughs> people that had never heard of it before. And they're like, what? This is amazing. I went and I've got three bottles. That explains why we're approaching back order. I've got uh, some rum in the uh, that was fermenting all week and it might be ready to run when I get back in today. Yeah, it's uh, it's been pretty popular. I'm not looking forward to making the next batch. It's extremely painful, uh, both on buying a bunch of habaneros. And of course, you have to, you know, you, you look at them and the way they look doesn't mean how they taste. So you have to take a bite into a habanero, and see how it tastes. Then you got to cut a million of them up. And that's a, a horrible experience. And you infuse it into the rum and taste it every day. And the first time to taste anything is in the morning before you've eaten, before you've had coffee, before you've brushed your teeth, your taste buds are the most alive. So sipping habanero rum at seven in the morning is not fun. But people love it, so we do it. Yeah, the the problems of makers, right? You got it. All right. Well, with that, I think we'll turn it over to you, and I will try to not be in control, which is not easy for me. <laughs> and I'll, I'll try not to talk about myself, which is not easy for me either. 
great. We're a good pair. All right. So I guess uh, we'll dive into it. And uh, let's have you briefly describe Stephanie Hansen and where and how did you grow up and what have you done? Okay. I grew up uh, in Bloomington, Minnesota, which not far from where I live now in Golden Valley. I immediately left home at 18. We had kind of a, a messy family life growing up. It was certainly fun, but uh, when I was 12, I had a sister that was killed in a car crash and followed by my parents getting divorced. Then there was remarriages. And so we have kind of a complicated family tree. But I started working in the Heartthrob nightclub in St. Paul. We talked about that, the roller yeah. skates. And uh, I miss it. I, it was, I, I love that place as a kid. I went, I think, two or three times. And It's funny. There's a Heartthrob Forever Facebook group. And after we talked and it came up, I was still moving some stuff around in our storage area that I have at the house. And I found this giant board that had all these pictures from the heartthrob and I was able to post them on the Facebook group. So it kind of brought back lots of memories. And while I was going to college, I was working as a cocktail waitress and I really loved the, I loved that environment. I loved promotions. I loved the marketing of the whole thing. I, I got to be the head cocktail waitress. And so I would come up with little contests and schemes and gimmicks and things that we would do in the club on special nights. And I really liked that job. And I was also going to school and I liked school a lot less. That was when, <laughs> if you were a liberal arts major at the University of Minnesota, you had about 15 classes that were required mm -hmm. and you'd go to the class and there'd be 4,000 people. It was like in a massive auditorium. And you would basically listen to a TA, tee up a lecture, they'd turn the lecture on a video screen, and you could buy the notes for the class. And then that was what you were supposed to be coming to every day. Huh. So I quickly figured out, well, I can just buy the notes here and not do any of the work. Mm -hmm. And that I was on the dean's list the first semester of school. And by the second semester, I was failing because I wasn't going to class. Mm -hmm. And I was just working. And so I didn't want to fail. I had a lot of baggage about the money that I was using for school because some of it had come from my sister. There was a settlement from my sister's car crash. And I thought I was really hung up about, look, I'm going to waste this money that my sister died to give me this opportunity. And I just felt really bound up about the college decision. Mm -hmm. So uh, it wasn't too long after that, that a new guy started working at the club and he was real cute. And he had khaki pants and penny loafers and his round tortoise glasses and a white press shirt. And he looked like he walked right out of a 1980s John Hughes movie. So and pleats I, and all. Yeah, totally. And I took one look at him and I was like, oh, he's pretty cute. Turned out we ended up dating. He was my boss. So we ended up dating and we moved to Baltimore. To, he was running nightclubs for this company and they were moving him around. And I went with, and when we got out there, we just decided that it probably wasn't the best idea for us to work together again, for obvious reasons. And I started looking for work and I got a job at an alternative newspaper called the Baltimore city paper, kind of like the city pages was here. Mm -hmm. And I started working at a newspaper and that was sort of the start of my marketing and advertising career. Interesting. So you just kind of fell into it a little bit, but I did. it evolved a little bit from your work at Hearthrob. Yeah, I did. And I had to take an aptitude test to get the job. And I was competing against some guy that had worked at the daily paper there that was older than me. And I did better on the aptitude test. 
which was, I guess, why they hired me. My boss that hired me at that job was super hot, super cute, really young guy. And he ended up being the publisher at Maxim for many years. Hmm. I remember yeah, reading just, that. Uh, I don't know if that publication still exists, but uh, the the teenage me in early 20s, it's, uh, it was the coolest magazine at, at its time. That was like mad, mad magazine for adults. Yeah. And it was very, there was always a hot, sexy woman on the cover and it was kind of geared towards men, um, but it was a pretty hip hop culture magazine at the time. Mm -hmm. So I worked there and then we ended up moving to Milwaukee with the nightclub company and then moving back here. And then my husband, you know, we were still dating and I was like, look, if we're going to try to make a go of this, you probably can't keep working in nightclubs. That's not a long-term plan. And he went and got his MBA here and ended up changing industries and getting into from the hospitality industry to the loyalty marketing business. So we both ended up in marketing. Interesting. So did you ever ever uh, graduate college or you and I both college dropouts? I'm a college dropout. And for a long time, I was sort of ashamed. I never brought it up. I never told anybody. I think people just assumed because I sort of kept rising at different jobs and it wasn't until I was applying the job that I got at, at my talk 107.1 was kind of weird because I'd already worked at Hubbard Broadcasting as a sales rep. And then I left. And when I came back, I was being interviewed for a talent position mm-hmm. and I had to refill out the application. And on the application, it specifically said, you know, if you lie, it's grounds for termination. And this was a job I really wanted. And so it was the first time on an application that I didn't just lie and say, oh, I went to the University of Minnesota because I figured that was sort of a white lie because I Mm -hmm. did. And I just had to write the dates I went and there was no finished date. And that was the first time I kind of came out. And then I think it it stayed in just the background. And again, nobody asked until I had a kid. And then, you know, you're talking to your kid about your choices and your life and what you want for them. And I never went to college. So I always saved money every month out of my paycheck to put my kid through school because I just wanted, for me, finances were a real barrier and Mm -hmm. I didn't want that to be a barrier for her. And I will tell you, she is just getting ready to graduate this May. And I'm real proud of that for her and that I was able to give her that choice about making it, I guess, making it easier. Yeah, absolutely. I I didn't go to college either. I went to I'm trying not to talk about myself, but went to you know, a little bit of technical school and uh, thought I wanted to be you know, a computer dork. And uh, that didn't really work out. And I, I struggled my whole life with not having a degree. I probably should have lied on some applications, probably would have made it a little little easier. But uh, yeah, it's, it gets us to where we are today. Yeah. Um, and I think what I think in 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 our day or my day, because I think I'm a lot older than you in my day, you really did had to have to have you didn't have to have a college education, but then it was quickly changing where Mm -hmm. you couldn't get anywhere if you didn't have a college education. And I still think it's like that, but I do think it's going in reverse. So there's a lot of trades and a lot of opportunities for kids that aren't going to be able to get a four-year education. I think the four-year education and how much it costs has just gotten out of control. So I think the colleges are backpedaling sort of on what that looks like, but yeah, I I was not proud of that, but I also I have no inclination to do it. Mm-hmm. I just I have no desire to go back. I even I told someone just the other day I'm so like I'm nervous about myself because I don't feel like I want to learn anything new. 
Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm full and I just want to master the stuff I am good at and maybe, you know, improve upon my hobbies. But for the first time in my life, I'm like, gosh, I just don't want to go back and like learn a language or learn these things. I'm kind of sick of it. I don't blame you. It's, you just kind of want to be on cruise control and enjoy things. It's I I want to what I'm hoping to is, is after COVID is to uh, convince a, a couple of professors and I never took biology or, or I, I guess I took one biology course uh, before I dropped out for the second time, but I never took chemistry or physics or anything like that. And I'd love to just sit and audit a class, but I have no desire in writing reports or learning all the stuff that I don't care about. So I, I completely understand that. It's uh, do you do you regret uh, looking back? Do you regret not having a degree at all? Or are you happy with where it uh, where that difficulty and uh, I guess burden and setback brought you to where you are in life? I regret it from the standpoint that I would not want it to hold me back. Mm-hmm. You know, are there jobs that I maybe, and at this point I'm self-employed and I can't go back, but yep. in the day there were definitely opportunities that I thought maybe I would pursue that I was afraid that because I didn't have a college education, I couldn't, but I don't regret it enough to do anything about it now. Like mm-hmm. where I am is where I'm supposed to be. I don't know how I got here or why I got here, but it's good. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel. It's I, I don't regret anything. I wish I had done things differently, but I'm happy with with where I am in life. Um, regret is such a heavy word. It is. It is. I mean, there's there's definitely things I regret doing, you know, or saying things like that. But as far as big life things, no, it's it's you know, I'm, I'm happy with where, where we're at. Um, let's backpedal a little bit. So you mentioned getting getting the job as as talent in at at Hubbard, I believe, and I would imagine that meant you know on on the air talent. And so is that something you naturally kind of always wanted to do? And then how did you end up pairing that with food? Where did which which kind of came first, the chicken or the egg? Yeah, my whole career, embarrassingly enough, has sort of been a happy accident. Mm-hmm. I think I had the desire to be an influencer. And that's a word that has taken on a lot of meaning recently, but I always wanted to kind of be famous. I always was sort of an actress. I had gone to performing arts school in high school and I always had big opinions and a big personality. Mm -hmm. And that worked really well in sales because I was also super hard worker and I was tenacious. I was very tenacious and persistent. If if you can use all those skills in sales, it's kind of a performance, right? You're performing based on what the client's needs are and you're coming up with creative solutions for them. I feel like sales and kind of acting are sort of similar. Absolutely. As I was in my sales career, I did like the leadership piece. I liked mentoring. I liked training. I had a lot of great mentors that helped me along the way. So I really enjoyed helping others get their chops right out of school or, you know, how do you cold call? How do you get in a customer engaged in what you're trying to sell them? How hard do you push? At what point do you do the customer needs analysis? And then once you've done the needs analysis, how do you come back and compile the data in order to put a compelling presentation together? I liked all of that. Um, When I was at City Pages, I was the director of sales and my girlfriends, Lori and Julia, were also in sales at Sun Country. And I knew them and I knew that there, I'd met a woman, her name was Lorna Gladstone and she was the president of WGN in Chicago, which is a super famous talk radio station. And I knew that one of the things they were working towards was creating a women's talk station. 
And that really appealed to me. I thought that was a super cool idea. At the time, you know, Rush Limbaugh and those guys were just starting to get rolling and it was very male. K-Fan and all that type of stuff. K-Fan I worked at as a sales rep early on. So yeah, those were all starting to roll. And I remember talking to Ginny Hubbard and just saying, hey, have you heard about this? I think this would be cool. And it turned out they were thinking about it. And somehow I heard that they were looking for talent. And I said to my two girlfriends that worked at Sun Country, who were sisters-in-law, you guys really should do this. So one of them, you know, we were in sales. So one of them super ballsy. I think it was Lori that called Ginny and was like, hey, we'd like to talk to you. And they got an appointment and they called me on the way back from the appointment. And they were like, well, we got a show, but it's not morning drive. And I was like, oh, well, what did you get? I mean, you they they basically had no skills in this arena at all. Mm -hmm. They'd never gone to Brown, nothing. And they were like, well, we got the afternoon drive slot from three to six. I was like, you dummies, you don't even know what you just did. This is amazing. That's pretty awesome to to get a a drive slot. And they got the job and they started on my talk. And then I would do the entertainment reports. I'd come from City Pages and we had an entertainment calendar. And it was that they were on the air for years, a few years, And then the station called me and they knew me because I'd worked there before. And they were like, hey, do you want to do a show after Lori and Julia from one to three? And I said I did. And they put me with a woman named Meredith. And Meredith and I were friends and still friendly, actually. But we didn't have great chemistry. We weren't really at the same place in life. And she was really young and single and really trying to find like the husband kind of route I was uh, already married, professional. I'd already had a baby. And we just didn't jive on a lot of the thing, the way that we felt about things. And more importantly, the things we wanted to talk about. She wanted to talk about very different things than I did. And it just, the show wasn't awesome. We both worked hard at it, but it wasn't awesome. And a year and a half later, they fired her and they said, we still want you to work here, but we don't know what we want you to do because we don't have a place for you. Mm -hmm. So they were like, keep coming to work and keep doing your show. But eventually your show will probably not be your show. It'll be someone else's show. I was crushed. And I kept thinking, oh, yeah, I thought I'll be so good while that they'll like want to keep me on. Well, they didn't. Turned out the person they had waiting in the wings was Jason Matheson, Mm -hmm. who was the personality who was on Fox, who had also been doing a Saturday night show on my talk. So he ended up getting the job in morning drive or yeah, in morning drive. Actually it was afternoons. They started him. And then they said, well, what do you want to do? Cause Jason doesn't want you to work on his show as a partner. And I was like, what? <laughs> and they were like, yeah, he doesn't want you. I was like, Oh, okay. This is the part of radio that everybody talks about that I'd never really experienced where it's just cutthroat and brutal. And you're just pushed out. Yep. And it has nothing to do with you, really. It has to do with your personality. Mm -hmm. Because you can be the hardest worker in the world, but if people don't like your personality or it doesn't fit, you can't really change that. So it's very, it just feels very personal and Mm -hmm. really sad. And so I said, well, I'd really like to do a food show. And they said, well, do you, what experience do you have in that? And I said, well, I worked in a restaurant a couple of years and I don't know. Who are you going to do the food show with? I don't know. I'll find somebody. Figure it out. They said, well, okay. How about like Saturdays? And at this point, my husband and I had already started a company Mm -hmm. and I was a silent partner and my husband was working at full time with another business partner. There were three of us. And I was like, well, yeah, sure. You know, it was better than no job at all. I did want to do the food show. I thought that would be fun. 
And in my mind, I was like, you know, maybe I can put that energy towards a full-time job because my husband had started our business, but it wasn't making any money. And so money was starting to get to be kind of a problem. And I thought, well, if I work on Saturdays at the radio station, I can go get a full-time job, start to pay some bills. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that I was interviewing for sales jobs and my husband was like, well, you're interviewing for all these sales jobs. Why don't you just do sales for us? I was like, well, so I went from, you know, selling radio time or selling newspaper time, selling radio time at, I worked at KFAN and K102 and KS95 to then being the director of sales at City Pages and then working for myself. I sold printing and direct mail for the company my husband had started with our business partner. And we were all a third, a third, a third. And I decided that I would be in the sales side. And I started doing sales, but over time, I just took over the sales functions and the sales management. Mm -hmm. And we sold that company in 2016. Okay. And then it was, I had always worked in radio that whole time. I had the Saturday show. Uh, that freed we up going, your schedule then? Yeah. And we're going on 13 years of that. Like every year I think, oh, is this the year that they just come in? You know, they'll knock on the door and be like, mm, you're done. Yep. And so Steph and I just laugh. It's like, if you'd have told us that we'd still be doing this every Saturday, 13 years later, but it's fun. Yeah, it's a long time to do it. And you guys yeah. seem to have a lot of fun recording it. At least it sounds that, that way from uh, from my perspective as a uh, occasional listener. I'm, I'm not good at tuning into shows or, or podcasts really. I'm on one track mind. And uh, if I start even just reading something, I tune out whatever audio or, but it's, I've, I've tuned in a, a bunch of times driving around and it, it does seem like you genuinely have fun. And if you're not, you're great at sales and, and projecting that. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I honestly think that COVID and the pandemic for Stephanie and I and the radio show has been amazing mm -hmm. because we are both super competitive people. We both, you know, her job was to be in the food space 24-7. My job was to be in my business 24-7 and then be a hobbyist foodie on the weekend. Mm -hmm. Well, for her, that could be kind of annoying at times. And yet I didn't want to be seen as the hobbyist. I wanted to be seen as an equal food person like she was, but I couldn't be in her same space. Yeah. I just, I wasn't spending the time there that she was. So it really worked out that she became the expert and I became the eater. And during COVID, we were both having really rich food, or before COVID, we were having very rich food lives, but mm -hmm. not the same. So I was doing different things than she was doing. And occasionally we'd see each other at an event or we'd connect, but we really only connected on weekends on the show. With COVID, her food life and all of that eating out and that you know, churning of food media and how important it is and being the journalist, like that all just kind of went to a much lower degree because everybody started working from home. Mm -hmm. We weren't eating out in restaurants. There wasn't this, this expert necessary or expertise because people were just trying to figure out how to survive. Yeah. The home cooking really kind of elevated and started to move into the forefront. And her and I didn't talk to anyone for the whole week. And so we'd sit down in the studio and we've always stayed in studio together, which is also like a 10 by 10 box. Mm -hmm. So we had to re-navigate. Where are you going? What does your week look like? You know, make sure that we were communicating about what our personal choices were so that if somebody felt like they hadn't been safe or that they'd been exposed to make sure yep. that we were candid with each other. And that has really brought a whole different level to the show 
of her and I not talking to anyone basically for a week, not competing for any attention, any accolades, any anything. Mm -hmm. And then we just sit down and it's like two friends that want to share all the stuff that's happened that week, the things they've cooked, the things that work that didn't work. So I feel like we have a new vulnerability with each other that's made the show even just that much better. Interesting. I, I, I'll be honest, I haven't tuned in in, in 2020, uh, except for maybe a couple of times throughout the pandemic. It was, and we'll try not to talk about 2020 too much. Yeah, I, I definitely, from my perspective, I've seen kind of a slump in in food writing on, on since the pandemic. And understandably, most of the restaurants have been closed. A lot of favorites have been closing. I think one of the things that, you know, there are some good people doing great things and, and trying new things, new up and coming chefs. And it just kind of seems like, yeah, there's that slump and everyone's kind of in this, like, I don't want to, I don't want to write about food. I don't know if I should be writing about restaurants, things like that. But yeah, I never, never thought about that from, from your perspective of, okay, we're sitting at home cooking. We're not going out. What do we talk about? And yeah, that's a, that's definitely a shift from the norm. I do think that food journalism is going to change. I think it's already changed. It's very um, difficult as a new restaurant opens in a pandemic to write a critical review. Yeah. Simply because we are all wanting this industry to survive. We are all wanting good things for the for the people that work in restaurants, for the distilleries, for the breweries. It it feels very shallow and ridiculous to talk about, you know, that your steak wasn't cooked all the way. Mm-hmm. What I do think the opportunity is, and this is a big opportunity that maybe we stepped into a little bit before, but it's the storytelling. You know, mm-hmm. the stories are richer. The history that people bring to the table is something that now is really interesting versus just what they put out on your plate. Mm-hmm. And so I think people are leaning into that. And also the maker community, the producers, I happen to have started the Makers of Minnesota over three years ago when podcasting was kind of first becoming a thing. And I just knew that I wanted to talk more and longer with people about their stories. I didn't on the radio show. We had 10 minutes with someone. Yeah. yeah. Just enough time for who are you? How'd you get started? What are you doing next? All right. Have a good one. That's right. And I didn't feel satisfied with that. Like I knew so many once they'd, people would get off the air and they'd sit with us during the next segment and tell us something. And I was like, oh, I'd really want to know more about that. So I feel like I had the right timing and was at the right place to tell these maker stories. And I'll be honest with you. And I think I maybe even told you this when we talked about the podcast in the beginning of the pandemic, I was like, I don't know if I can keep doing this. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, people were so sad. Oh, Mike yeah. Brown came on our radio show and basically was crying. I, and I, said, I could imagine it's, it's, uh, yeah, we were all in, I mean, just about everyone was in a bad situation. And I was, you know, I've, I've been a huge supporter of Travail and Mike Brown. And uh, I've, I've, I don't even want to think of how much money I've spent there over the years. And I was there on that, that last day open, which was one of their first days open at Travail 3.0 down in the basement bar the night before shutdown. And I I could not imagine out of anyone in town, his feeling because he had just opened a couple days before. He, uh, yeah, he'd opened on, I want to say a Thursday or Wednesday or a Thursday. And on Saturday morning, we had him on and he called in to say that they were being shut down, obviously. And he just, it was, 
it was so sad. I can't even, both Stephanie and I got off the interview with him and we cried through the whole commercial break. And we were scared ourselves too. You know, it's like, what is happening? We were worried for our jobs, for our livelihood Mm -hmm. in any respect. What I think has been so cool and, and part of this, too, is you can't talk about the pandemic in the Twin Cities and restaurants in the Twin Cities without talking about the George Floyd situation either. Absolutely. I think the murder of George Floyd and the protests and the summer brought to light a lot of inequities that were already inherent in the restaurant business because of the low minimum wage, because of the lack of benefits, mental health services, the type of industry that it is. It tended to catch transient people, people that were um, using it as a stopover from point A to point B. But then it also had this whole creative class of people that this is their career. This is their Mm -hmm. livelihood. They're not just here to uh, pour you a drink. They're here because this is their chosen profession and their craftspeople. Correct. And so you have all these different types of people in the stew and then the racial inequities and the fact that, you know, Minnesota is a predominantly white place. And I think so many of us have good intentions and want to create a seat at the table, but we maybe didn't even realize that we weren't scooching over on the bench. I certainly felt like in, for me personally, I always felt like, well, I'm not racist. I'm not prejudiced. Like I accept people for who they are. And, and, and as I examined my own beliefs and I became more aware of what that looked like and, you know, also being consciously aware that I was a a white woman in the middle of a predominantly white society, I learned that it wasn't just enough to think I was moving over on the bench I literally had to move over on the bench and hold that space. And that that was something that I hadn't been doing consciously. And I'm better. I'm learning. I'm listening. I also talk for a living. So that's challenging to try to stop talking long enough to let somebody else talk. But I think that you can't talk about the pandemic in this town without talking about what happened with the George Floyd situation, his murder, the subsequent fallout from it. And all of that is impacting the restaurant business still today and business still today as we oh, lead up to the trial starting and what that's going to look like. Yeah, it's it's I think any any business in in Minneapolis is, you know, they, they've had they've had a rougher year. We're out in the, the suburbs. We had a little bit of a scare. You know, nothing really happened out here. Yeah, we had a lot of businesses that were boarded up. I barricaded the distillery, took all the signs down, but I didn't have to go through what Minneapolis did. And unfortunately, it's it's still happening. My in-laws have a, a small flower shop in Minneapolis that, you know, they were boarded up, they were broken into, and they're they're gearing up for that again. And that's something that out in the suburbs, we fortunately don't have to deal with as much. And I think, yeah, the, the businesses and restaurants downtown, I want to, you know, I'm in my house out here in the uh, Brooklyn Park in the suburbs, and I wanted to get a, a condo downtown and, you know, have some place that where I can walk across the street and grab a beer after work or, you know, go to walk two blocks away, go to a, a grocery store and go to this restaurant and that restaurant. And I'm, I'm extremely fearful that due to the pandemic and, you know, everything the from the result of, of George Floyd's murder, that 
you know, downtown is going to kind of implode. Um, you know, there, there's just so many less people going down there. And so that the restaurants and grocery stores and everything else that supports those people is going to go away. And that's, that's a big fear of mine. I'm, you know, there's a lot of a lot of really good restaurants downtown that are near and dear to my heart. It's a really interesting it's a really interesting thing to think about mm-hmm. because on the one hand, a lot of these businesses are people that are people of color, people that are immigrant owned businesses. On the other hand, you have this perception of downtown and in some respect, like I heard some people, they were like, downtown is the same as it's always been. It's just without all the hustle and bustle around it, you notice what was there all along. Mm-hmm. And you see more homeless people and you see more destruction of businesses. And I don't necessarily buy that because I think now we've got statistics that have borne out that crime has increased. The lack of safety has increased the police presence alone. If you look at how depleted the police force is because of people that have taken leave or have PTSD or whatever their situations are, there's just a lot less boots on the ground as it were. Mm-hmm. But yet we all feel, and this is the part that's sad, and I'm hoping will start to right itself. We all want social justice. Mm-hmm. We all want a safe downtown. We want to have to be able to go to a Twins game and be able to have a beer and be able to grab a hot dog at a restaurant outside. But we have to sort of get through this period, and there has to be some systemic change. And that is not something that happens quickly. And that is not something that necessarily supports businesses on the front end, right? Mm -hmm. It will down the road and it will because businesses need to change too, but it's just going to be long and it's going to be slow. And, you know, I'm very sensitive to the fact that I lived, I I lived in the heart of St. Paul for many years and I just moved to Golden Valley. And I can tell you, it feels really different here than it does where I lived before. And I say that not because I'm proud of it. I'm almost like, I feel a little bit like white flight to be perfectly honest, but I have to consider my safety. I have to consider my longevity, my age, where I want to live long-term. And the city was just not feeling the same to me as it had been yet. I want good things for it. And so I'm trying to figure out what that balance is of personal safety and also supporting restaurants and supporting people that I care about still shopping in those areas and of course, my daughter still lives in the city. And I mean, I live in, I live right by Theater Worth Park. It's not like I'm completely have abandoned the city. I'm pretty close to it, but it does feel different than it felt. And if you would have said to me five years ago, someday I would end up leaving St. Paul, I would have said, no way. What are you talking about? Never. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I get that. I, I used to live off of, uh, before we moved out to Brooklyn Park almost 20 years ago, Mary and I lived off of uh, Marshall and Pryor in a small apartment building. And, it's definitely a completely different vibe, but I, I get that safety aspect of it. It's uh, I want Mary to live in a place where you know me as a, a six foot four, two hundred and thirty pound uh, male. What makes me feel unsafe is a completely different situation for what makes Mary feel unsafe. And I want to be in a, a place where she can go for a walk at you know seven o'clock at night when the sun's setting, and not feel unsafe. I, I feel like I should say too, because I don't talk about this very much, but before the George Floyd murders, actually it was the fall before, I was uh, carjacked in St. Paul near oh, where I work. And I was a person, had like a fake accident with me where I was at a stop sign and they were in front of me and came to the car and said, 
you know, is there a reason why you hit me back there? And I was like, um, no, I don't think I hit your car. And they were like, oh, yes, you did. You scratched it. And here, come look, come look. And I was sort of just confused and got out of the car and saw their car and there was like nothing and they were pointing at it. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I don't really see anything, but you know, maybe we should call the police. And they were like, well, we need your insurance. Do you have insurance? Get your insurance. So I was like, yeah, I have insurance. Um, maybe we should call the police. So I go back to my car and they're like, it was a, it was a woman. We need your insurance. So I I'm like, okay, just a second. And I've got my cell phone. I'm like, let's call the police. We'll make a report. That way, if there's damage, you can get compensated. I At that point, she reached into the car because I had the door open because I had gotten out of the car and w- tried to grab my purse. And another person was at the other door of my car trying to get into the car. Then meanwhile, and, you're probably just completely stunned because this is not normal. And your brain isn't used to dealing with this not normal situation that's suddenly very quickly evolving And it was literally, and I don't know if you know where Hubbard Broadcasting is, but it was right on Territorial Road at the stop sign as I'm just about to go into the parking lot of work. So it was real weird, too, in that, like, I was almost in the parking lot of our business, and I'm screaming, and I'm screaming for help, and the cars drove by, and I'm sure they thought it was like a domestic or something. And then another car of kids came and they were screaming, you know, we're calling the police, we're calling the police. And eventually I was able to fend off the woman who was attacking me and the the car other, the passenger car door never opened because I had an automatic lock system. Mm -hmm. So that had happened. And as we started to get into the situation more with unmarked cars and carjackings and things happening, I started to just feel scared. Yeah. And I haven't talked about it that much, but I was scared and I didn't want to feel scared walking my dog. I didn't want to feel scared leaving my house. My husband was gone a lot and I would just stay in my bedroom kind of. Mm -hmm. And I really felt like it was time for my mental health to make a change. So that's probably the first time I've ever really talked about that, but that was part of the wanting to move to, and we'd, we were in a townhome and we really missed having a yard. Mm-hmm. So all of those things sort of combined and we started looking and then the George Floyd murders happened. And I think we moved up our search. Yeah. Well, it's understandable. And it's a, definitely a traumatic experience. And if, uh, if we ever do move downtown, we've got a yard right now. I don't have time to enjoy it, but I, I think that'd be the biggest thing I would miss is that green space that you don't have when you have a townhome. Yeah. You, you kind of have a yard, but not really. I, I grew up in a, a townhome in my my teenage years. And uh, yeah, so I, I completely get that. And yeah, the, the suburbs definitely, you know, have a, a little bit more safety, a little bit less action uh, for better or worse. Um, you know, we got a lot more fast food restaurants and less small mom and pop restaurants, unfortunately. But yeah, there's, there's definitely some, some give and take with that. And I don't, I don't blame you at all for, for moving. Thanks. Thanks. I have a, a few more questions. Left. Wait, you have I questions think. for me? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've got, I have another recording in about yeah. 15 minutes, if I'm being perfectly honest. No problem. Let's get, let's get back into, uh, you know, what you do with, with marketing and everything. Cause I know that's, uh, you know, where, where you're, you're definitely self-employed and you've seen in your time with 
with advertising ever since you've been in the industry. You've definitely seen a big paradigm shift from back in the day, newspaper was king, and then you had TV and radio, and then the internet came in and the the initial with the internet was, you know, little annoying pop-up ads and banners. And then that's evolved and things you have Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and and everything. And I, I think even at this point now that's evolving. You have a lot less people using Facebook. It's starting to become kind of the MySpace. And these media companies, obviously Facebook and Instagram are a source of free advertising for a small business like mine. It had the opportunity of influencers, but these big billion dollar companies are realizing, you know, they're losing money. And so they're trying to phase the influencers out and trying to make small business like mine pay more. So that leads me is is the magic question. And I don't know if you have any insight into this is what's next for, for advertising kind of where's the next, you know, for, for someone like you, how do you reach those customers as, as these big businesses are trying to phase out the the free and the, the, the small businesses? I think it goes back to something that was there all along, which is there's riches and niches. Mm-hmm. And there's a book that's called that. So I think you have to find out what your niche is and you have to start building up your direct line of communication with them. So one of the weird ways that that's happening is email marketing. You know, having an email list, a newsletter, or a way to communicate with your customers directly is becoming very important. Mm-hmm. I also think that digital will keep going, but it will change and evolve. So you mentioned MySpace, which was a big deal for the teens, obviously in the early 90s. But those same teens now are the 35 to 44-year-old women that are driving the Instagram movement. Mm -hmm. So I think it will stay. I think it will just be a different format. And a lot of this is driven by the development of technology too, with like the phones and how easy it was to all of a sudden make a video that drove the TikTok and the reels and more video content as being popular. So I think building your niches is important and finding ways to communicate with your customers is important. And those customers are still there. Where are they? That's the key, like finding them. And can you, if you only have a small budget and you don't have a lot of money, you find out where your customers are that you can afford and you start reaching them there. And then you grow that over time. So a radio example that I would use is, and I'll use my own show, Weekly Dish. It's $50 a spot to advertise on Weekly Dish. Mm -hmm. That's not a lot. No. If you have a limited budget and you over 13 weeks, every week have a spot, you're going to reach the same 4,000 people, but you're going to reach them versus trying to reach 50,000 people one time. Correct. And so find the way that you can micro-target your person and then do that. And do that until you can grow to the next thing. Mm-hmm. But you do have to start somewhere. And I think people, social media isn't free. No. There's a cost in the bigger construct and also in how you use it. And if you're using it well, just because you can put something out on Facebook doesn't necessarily mean you should or that you did it well or that <laughs> anyone saw it. There's there's a lot of bad marketing, great, great businesses and great products that are marketed poorly, you know, with b- bad content. And we struggle with that. OK, how do we how do we, how do we make it not feel artificial? You know, um, and, and that's authenticity. And, and there's two kinds of authenticity. There's authenticity that you buy and authenticity that is. Mm-hmm. So if your clumsy 
authenticity is all you can do, that's better than buying authenticity that's not real. Correct. And I'll one of the problems I have with my own personal brands, Makers of Minnesota, also Stephanie's Dish, is I never ask for money, really. People will say, like, can you help me with this? And then I'll be like, yeah, and here's what I charge for those things. But I don't really, I'm not good about asking for it. But I know, like, if I highlight something, I know people go and buy it because they trust me. And for all the people that come to me with like their weird probiotic protein shake formulas and like here, you know, I'm like, no, that's not my brand. I don't want to, I'm not going to take that. I'm not going to promote that. If I say, you know, your habanero rum is exceptional. It's people buy it because they know that I'm not going to tell them to buy the crappy stuff because I'm not. Yep. But also you have to be very authentic to the brand. I, someone, people come to me and offer me like money to do this and money to do that. I'm like, no, I don't think I can do that. Now I'm in a little bit different position because I had a company and I sold it. So I'm on the hustle, but the hustle, you know, my mortgage is paid. You get so to be a little choosier a little as far different. as, yeah. it's uh you don't go, okay, well, this goes against my values or my, my, you know, just my personal opinions, but I need to pay my mortgage. And I do think if you stay authentic to your brand and authentic to yourself, that even though some of those opportunities look good, they're going to bite you in the ass down the road. So just stay true to who you are. You know, you guys are in a craft space and Mm -hmm. the way you've constructed your cocktail room, which sadly I still have not been to because I'm not going out into places. No worries. It is a pandemic. It, It is that there's a lot of people in that space for you to talk to. And it's just a matter of finding out how they want you to talk to them, really. Exactly. That's that's one of the things that's nicest about actually having a, a space that people can go to versus a, a cavern that's just me and uh, a couple employees grinding out is actually being able to talk to people and answer questions, show them things like that. And it's it's pretty fun. I think uh, for no, the... Oh, dist- go ahead. I was just going to say for the distillery folks, craft cocktails are things people want, but they don't know how to do them. Absolutely. And they say they want to learn and they kind of do to a point, but only if it's like three ingredients or less. Yeah, that's exactly what I say is here at home. I, I've got a bunch of stuff in the liquor cabinet. I don't know what to do with it. It's uh, what's, you know, gin and tonic. You know, and then at the, the, our cocktail room, we've got uh, I've got a whole laboratory and chefs dedicated towards towards it. It's something you just can't make at home. Most of them. But uh, I know we're running short on time here. I got a couple other questions about sure. Stephanie Hansen. Uh, I, I know you like to travel a lot. Uh, you've uh, you've flown places. I I know you you have have or had an old camper, uh, which looked uh, looked pretty cool. What what are kind of your favorite places, favorite adventures, favorite foods to travel, and and also if you could travel to an amazing place but have bland food, or stay home and have amazing food. What are your what are your choices? I know I just asked you a million questions right there. Okay. So best food experience I ever have had, well, two probably was, well, three. I mean, France is pretty amazing. And I went and did a riverboat canal uh, tour of the Languedoc region of France. And that's where a lot of the wine is grown. Mm-hmm. So that was a pretty amazing experience going from these little towns and these little inns and just uh, really experiencing the town for the day. Most of the experiences that I've had have been through sailing adventures. Um, My husband and I sail and we've been to Croatia a number of times. 
And that looks we, amazing. I, yeah, it is. It's been a pretty uh, amazing journey in that respect. And we went to an area of Croatia that's known for oysters and mussels. And we took our sailboat into like where they farm them and then spent the day in the town where, you know, literally you'd go and you'd order oysters and the guy would take them out of the, his bag that he had just, you know, got from his at the end of his dock that morning. Mm-hmm. So that was a pretty special experience. And just eating in Italy at some of the Italian islands, uh, again, they're not getting fresh food every day. So you're eating what is growing in their backyard. So mm-hmm. the eggplants, the tomatoes, the wine that they are growing on their island, that's their own house white, their own house red. So cool. Yeah, that has really been some amazing food experiences And I think that's the thing I miss the most during the pandemic. I have taken a lot of that love of food and I am now gardening a lot more. I have a big garden and turning the food I grow into food that I can eat, like sauerkraut and pickles and Mm -hmm. tomato sauces and all those things I've been canning like crazy. And it's all been really fun. It's been a natural journey. The funny thing is, is my mom died from breast cancer. She died, let's see, probably 15 years ago coming up. And she has no idea about my food life because I hadn't started it until late. Same with my dad and my business. It didn't exist. Yeah. So I think about like how, because my mom was a good cook and a very Midwestern cook, but a good cook. And she'd just be like, oh my gosh, how I have this kid that is in this food life. I think she would think it's funny. Yeah, absolutely. So would you take travel and bad food or no travel and good food? Travel and bad food? I think I'd do the same thing. I know I can make good food. Yep. You know, give me give me a tomato and I can make something pretty good with it. I just the richness of your life, the things you see, you know, traveling even in a van during the beginning of the pandemic and during the administration that we just came out of, the four years of Trump and traveling all over the country and talking to people that don't have the same political beliefs that I do, but really understanding who those people are and that we're not that different in what we want. It's just a matter of how we go about it. That was really important for me to get my mind around. I wish so many more people would get out and talk to to people with different views. It's I've, you know, with our, with our employees, I know we're not supposed to talk politics at work, but we, you know, we do, we're people and we have multiple different, uh, I don't want to say extremes, but polarizations in the distillery, but you got to understand that they've, everyone's got their reasons for their own views and that their views aren't your views. And that's the way the world works. And, and that the tribalism of being in your camp and being so rigid and not being able to get out of your camp isn't really helpful either. Correct. I think you get that from travel. I think you get Mm -hmm. that from getting out of your neighborhood, your house, your street. And I think that if you don't have that ability, it gets harder and harder to see past your own neighborhood. Correct. Correct. I agree with you there. Is there anything, I imagine it's, it's, what do you have left on your, on your bucket list for, for things that you want to do in life? And what do you see yourself checking off? And what do you, what do you see yourself, you know, probably not checking off that, that you wish you would? Well, I'm gearing up to travel again. I would love to go to Thailand. Mm-hmm. I would love to go to the to the shore of the Asian countries and the water. Yep, I so, did that in Cambodia. Yeah, trying to get a sailing situation going down there. That's a frontier we haven't conquered. 
also Turkey and Istanbul Mm -hmm. and sort of that Aegean coast appeals to me. What do I have to check off my bucket list? One of the things I'm, I'm working on a cookbook. Really? That's new. Yeah. I just um, pitched an idea and I got the go ahead. So I'm working on that. And that's something I've never done before. So it's feeling very fresh and exciting to work on that. A little daunting too, if I'm (laughs) completely honest. But yeah, just, I think more just building out my food life in a way that feels holistic and good to me. So I feel like I have a couple books in me probably, you know, with a traveling and food inspiration and also just gardening in Minnesota. I have a garden in a zone three area up in Ely, Minnesota. So mm-hmm. that, you know, you you can do a lot with cabbage, different things that you don't see in other parts of town. Absolutely. That's super awesome. It's uh yeah, I think uh I think I'm out of questions. And I imagine you're you're kind of out of time. I've got other questions written down and we could I feel like we could talk forever. We're going to, though, it's going to be in your tap room when I come. Exactly. I was going to ask you if if there's a time, um, you know, and, and it, obviously everyone has different different levels of comfort. It's I could mark out time where you'd be the only one either in the in the cocktail room at all or, you know, the only one at the bar or only one in a, you know, a certain seating area if you want to come out. And, and, uh, um, and we can definitely, you know, just it's a sacrifice for me to be like, hey, no one else can come in. But that's a. We'll work whatever it the out. heck I want. So if, if you ever like want, I'm let getting, me know. I'm getting close to, I'm working the all my vaccine angles too. So yeah. hopefully in the next two to three months, I will have gotten a vaccine because I feel like I'm close to getting mm-hmm. something. And when I do, then I'm going to go out again. We we should be, we should be. It's, it's looking at, I know last time we talked was in December and I think it was just starting to roll out. And it's, I think we're at, I want to say 1.4 million doses have been given out in Minnesota. And uh, I, I think it's pretty close. It's something where I want all of my, uh, my bartenders and stuff to have it. I want it. It's, you know, I'm, I'm not afraid of getting sick myself. I'm, I don't want to get other people sick, but I also, right. in our industry, one thing that a lot of people don't think about and it's why we still are, you know, very adamant on masks and everything like that. Is that if I get sick and I lose my sense of taste, how can I operate a still? Uh, if my bartenders get sick and lose their sense of taste, how can they? How do they know if something's tasting? I right? never thought about that. You're right. And yeah, so the restaurant industry, it's super, super critical on just that little aspect of it. Where yeah, we're all young you know, fairly healthy. But if I lost my sense of smell for two weeks, I could deal with it. What if it's six months? What if it's right. permanently? I don't know what I do. So I, I completely understand everyone's reasoning for and personal comfort, but that vaccine should be more and more available. I know I've heard people, uh, especially as it rolls out even more, is calling up the, the pharmacies and clinics towards the end of the day. Because if they just opened up a box of, you know, six or something and they've got five left, they've got to throw them out if they don't use them. So Yep. Well, I really appreciate the time today. I'm going to cut us off because I'm going to go to my next interview and I don't want to be late. It's been great talking to you and I will connect with you and get to the tap room soon. Sounds I always good. You say have a tap good room. Why do I yeah, say tap? Hillary doesn't just roll yeah, but off we know the what you, But we know what you mean. It's a cocktail room. Sounds so weird. It's a, and we call ours a cocktail lounge. It's a tap room, a place to drink. Uh, the a bar. The, the bar. Yep. It, it's It's all the same. I know what you mean. So. All right. Yeah, it's been fun. And uh, yeah, you have a good one. And uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been good to get to know you. Take care. You too.